I'd like to just mention one thing. Usually at this time of the day, a lot of people are dealing with sleepiness. I try to make the anger as rousing as possible. You'll see how successful I was. But you, you may find yourself dozing off or nodding a little bit. And there are a few things that are helpful. One thing is feel free to stand up, because if you're standing up, you're unlikely to start nodding off because you know that you're going to fall over. So stand up, feel free to do that. You may also want to open your eyes a little bit if you find that you're falling asleep. Just softly, unfocused, just it sort of keeps you more alert. Um, you may want to shift from the breathing just to the body, very definitely, if you're feeling tired. It's really important to work with these hindrances as they come up, like sleepiness, because we're trying to make what is difficult workable. And so not just surrendering to the sleepiness and just allowing yourself to go to sleep, but to actually be aware of being sleepy. You can do that too. You can just say, sleepiness, sleepiness. And you can try and have a mind that is bigger than the sleepiness. And just be aware of, how do I experience that in my body? How do I experience that in my mind? Bringing everything within the embrace of the meditation is where we're heading for, excluding nothing. So once again, with the eyes softly closed, if that feels good to you, giving attention to the experience of breathing. It may be that you're going to find that the mind is gradually becoming a little more collected and present. And so seeing if it's possible to see the moment of birth of each thought, each breath and each sound, the middle of each breath and the end of each breath. So too with sensations in the body, being carefully aware of exactly what the truth is of that sensation. Giving bare attention to the sensations of breathing and the sensations that arise in the body. Giving also bare attention to emotions that arise with the same quality of mind that doesn't push them away or hold on to them, that doesn't change the emotions or comment or conceptualize, just allowing anger to be, allowing fear to happen, to begin and to end. If your attention is called by a sound, just allowing the sound to happen. opening up the attention to include more and further aspects of our experience until in the end nothing falls outside of the meditation practice. Using the breath as the anchor to collect the mind, to bring some calmness of mind 
and from the breath then moving to other aspects of your experience. Acknowledging thoughts and letting them go and returning to whatever is predominant. What this means is that there are no interruptions to the meditation practice. No problems. Everything just is as it is. The willingness to begin again and again and again is the heart of the meditation practice.
being aware of any emotional energy that arises might be fluttering or pulsing energy somewhere in the chest, in the gut, pressure, however you experience just being aware of emotions as they arise. No good emotions, no bad emotions, it's just energy manifesting moment to moment. last few minutes
opening up also to any feelings of resistance that there might be in the body. Maybe resistance to pain, resistance to emotions, resistance to perhaps being here on retreat. Where do you experience resistance? How does it feel in the body? How does it feel in the mind? Opening to everything. Are there any questions relating to working with emotions or any other aspect of the meditation?
So you're watching the breathing and then your shoulder's aching and you're going to the shoulder and then you, you're just getting lost? Well, I, I'm trying to stay with the breath, but yeah. I'm also, um, seems like I'm just, uh, I get to the point where I'm almost unconscious when I was supposed to be doing it, I have to go back to it. Yeah, yeah. Was that happening before lunch? Um, maybe, I don't think so. I think I was pretty much more focused than yeah. before lunch. Maybe I to do it full. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you'll be happy to know that this was like, traditionally the worst sitting of any meditation is the sitting after lunch. I mean, I've seen people on retreat go completely over and fall on their faces, you know. <laughs> So we did great, you know. <laughs> but it sounds to me like you were probably sort of dozing off a bit, you know. And um, that's okay, you know. I mean, it's hard work we're doing here, you know. And so my question to you is, is it okay? <laughs> you know, you could do a couple of things. I mean, there were a number of people that stood up, and I'd be interested to know how it was for the people who did stand up. But you could stand up. You could go and splash your face with water. You could... A friend of mine who was a monk, his meditation teacher used to tell him to go and sit on the edge of a well that was about 60 or 70 feet deep. And it was like his tiredness just disappeared, you know? Because if he was... If he fell into that well, I mean, you know, yeah, that would have been the end of him. So he was wide awake, you know. So it's a way of, the challenge is to find what works for you, you know. And it sounds like you were dealing with a bit of sleepiness. You could also, if possible, and that's a little difficult, you know, um, but to be aware of being sleepy. So if you could actually, like if there's a fog in the mind, sometimes that's what happens to me. It feels like it's foggy. Was a little bit like that with you? Sometimes I, I make my mind big enough to go outside and come in and touch the edge of the fog, you know, just like this with the mind. And it's been remarkable. Sometimes I go like this and all of a sudden, it's gone and everything's crystal clear. And it's such a shock because you realize that was just another cloud in the mind, you know. It's like fog meditation, you know. So. Experiment with it, work with it, you know. Do any of the people that stood up want to say how that was, whether it made a difference? Well, I, I didn't feel like I was going to fall asleep, but I felt distracted in a different kind of way. Mm. Was it helpful? I was glad to know be talking to you. Yeah, yeah. That's the important thing, is not to indulge in sleep, you know, because sleepiness, in my experience, has been one of the ways that I have suppressed other emotions. I had a period on retreat last winter where I had three... Now, I don't deal a lot with sleepiness and tiredness. I deal with too much energy often on retreat. I was absolutely dragging around. It felt like my body was just being pulled along. And it went on for three days, and it was horrible. And I was frustrated. I hated it. It was so different. And I forced it. What I did was I went out, and I did this walking meditation, but like a, like a, um, 
a dynamo, you know, I'm just going to get this out the way. And what happened was underneath that was the most unbelievable terror and fear. And so what I'm saying is like to gently make something workable like sleepiness and to respect the fact that the sleepiness might be just holding something in. You know, it might not actually in the end be sleepiness, it might be something else that's coming up and this is just the way that you sort of protect it until it comes into the open. So to respect it and work with it in whatever way, to try and make it work, that's what the practice is. Making all of these things that are difficult work. And what might be under the, the sleep for you is different to what's under the sleep for you maybe. And each of us has our own kind of little inquiry to make. You know? Most people deal with sleepiness. It's a real favorite for a lot of people. You had a question. First of all, you know, the one thing that's important to remember is that is the context of this retreat. Although we all here in our different ways dealing with issues that are very current and 20th century issues, that we that these techniques are two and a half thousand years old. And in a very real way, the way we are practicing today is the way that women and men have practiced in this tradition for two and a half thousand years. Coming together, taking refuge in one another, being quiet, looking within, and um, finding out what's true. Now, in the way the teachings have come forward and have been translated, there are a myriad of interpretations. <coughs> And there are so many different traditions of Buddhism, too, with different emphases and different rituals and things. Sometimes anger is referred to as a defilement, and I can certainly understand how defilement can really push a whole lot further buttons, you know, when in actual fact what we're trying to do is accept the anger. To be told that it's defilement implies that it's bad. So I think the thing to do is to, for me, 
for me, the, the essence of working with anger is being absolutely okay with the fact that it arises under certain conditions. And the fact that some people term it a defilement doesn't in any way detract from what I feel is true for me, that it is a conditioned response, like in the situation where you were feeling suffocated. That for you, the experience of feeling suffocated, and that's my one too, it's like anybody gets too intense with me, it pushes my anger button and anger arises, you know. So, um, it's all in the translation. You know, I'm quite sure that when the Buddha spoke about anger, he wasn't calling it, he, he wasn't saying it's unacceptable in you. I'm sure that what he was saying was that um, we need to make this workable so that we're not governed by it and we're not a victim of it, which sounds to me somewhat like you, you, you felt happened with you, like you said and did things that on reflection now, out of the heat of the moment, you'd not like to have done. What I'd like to offer is that it's my experience and my experience when working with other people is that the process of befriending anger is a long, difficult, very, very precious and important process. And that in all such processes of the spiritual journey, we need to give ourselves permission to stumble and to fall and to learn and to feel the pain of where it is that we've reacted rather than responded. But for many of us, when the anger has been so suppressed, when it does come out, it comes out in ways that are jagged and hurtful. And we need to accept that too, because if we struggle with that, then we're in conflict again and we're just creating more suffering. So I have decided to end this retreat with a forgiveness meditation which for me has been the other primary practice along with the practice we've been doing here because I find that forgiveness has over the years and it's now 12 years that I've been working with it has given me a context in which I can receive those parts of me that are reactive, that are hurtful, that can really be a barb to other people not that I even want to be that, but it's just my buttons are in such a configuration that when they pushed well, like it sounds yours were, it's bang, you know? And then what do we do? So we go bang, then what do we do? Gavin, you're terrible, you're awful, you're supposed to be a Buddhist, you're supposed to love everybody, and look what you're doing, you're hopeless, you're a mess. Now that's a whole lot extra. And the way that I'm coming to see as more workable for me is, wow! That was a button push, Gavin. Phew. Let's just go off and just see what happened there. But do it with like, you know, I love you so much, you really try. Boy, this is hard, you know. Phew. And maybe the person who you said was special, like when you get home after a retreat, you can say to him, look, or her, um, look, this is like a big issue for me. Sometimes I'm going to go off, which is not to say that what you did was okay. You know, it wasn't. But if you could hang in with me, I have to honor the fact that there's been a lot of suppression and I'm celebrating the emergence of this energy. And I'm a baby when it comes to working with it. Call on all your friends, you know, all your buddies, your sisters, your brothers. 
for help in dealing with this. And it's great. When anger becomes workable, ah oh man, it's such a relief. But it's a process, you know. And a meditation, you know, the healing that happens is rarely in an instant, you know, with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or a flash of lightning. More it's just one day we realize I was able to boundary there in a really sweet, loving way. How nice, you know? Or in a firm way, say no, you know? But without a knife, you know? But it's like, for me, it's been one of the hardest, you know? And just kind of honoring the fact that you're doing it and that it's probably taking longer than you'd like and that you're stumbling more often than you'd like to, but you're doing it, you know? We live in a world that reactively acts out of anger. I mean, we've got white male politicians screaming and shouting at each other in anger all the time. You know, there's no holding back. And we are interrupting that here. We are stopping it. We're saying no. But it's hard. We've been so conditioned, to some extent, by our fathers and mothers who were conditioned by their father and mothers. And we're saying no. But we need to be forgiving of ourselves when we behave like those who conditioned us, you know. So I, I ask that you be real patient and forgiving of yourself as being the primary ways of dealing with it. And it sounds like you're doing great. Yeah. We can certainly speak more about anger later. I love the subject. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most incredible things for me is when I'm able to just be present with anger in its purest form, which is just for me a bubbling of energy way down in my groin area. That's where I experience it. When I'm just there with it, that is what creates wars. That's what created nuclear weapons. That's what creates child abuse. Just that energy, you know? And getting down to the level where you can just look at it and say, you know, I see you. I see the truth of who you are, you know? Like if you're in dialogue with the anger. What a thing we're doing here, you know? 
we are interrupting so much violence on our planet by having the guts to sit down and really understand how anger works. I think it's the most courageous decision that any woman or man could ever make because we're saying no to so much that's hurt us and others. Hi, Ruth. Um, you mentioned um, emotional energies and feeling pressure and stuff. Mm. I, I tend to feel the energy as energy, but never can figure out if it's emotional or not, mm. let alone what emotion. Mm. <laughs> you know what? The advice that I gave in the talk of stopping in any moment, like if you're in a situation, say you're talking to me and suddenly you get really angry with me, say to me, excuse me for a moment, I need to go to the toilet. And go to the toilet, close the door and say, how, I'm angry now, how am I experiencing this? You know? Being that interested. And then seeing, and then in another moment you're talking to Narayan and you're petrified of her and excuse yourself and go to the toilet and just see, how, am I, how do I experience fear? Where do I feel in my body? Where do I feel in my gut? That for me has been the real way that I've come to see how these emotions work. And sometimes the anger and the fear can be so close to each other that they're sort of indistinguishable and then knowing when that's happening too. And when you know the anger and the fear, you're not a victim of it. But stop, listen, ask, you know, is this anger? Is this fear? You know? And slowly it opens. You know? The fact that you ask that question tells me that you're on the road. You know? But it's, it's, a, it's a bumpy ride. You know? I think I'm going to say this is the last question, but that's not to put a cork on it, because we've got a long session coming up of questions and answers. So I'll ask if there are any additional questions, if you could just keep them, or even if you want to indicate to me that you have a question, I'll write your name down and I'll get back to you. Yeah. I don't understand how to um, pay attention to an emotion without doing what you were referring to as like getting on a train. Mm. Well, most often what happens for us is the way we know there's an emotion is because we have the string of thoughts. So if we have a string of thoughts, you know, I hate Gavin, I hate his accent, I hate everything about him, I hate being here, I hated the food, I just hate everything about Buddhism, and, you know, then you know that there's probably some anger going on, you know? <laughs> you know? And so sometimes our thoughts are a clue of what's happening. So they're actually valuable. Now, if you don't buy into thoughts, if every time a thought comes, you're able to say, thinking, thinking, they pop and they go. And then you ask, now what's here? And then a thought comes, you let it go, what's here? And you'll find that there is a very distinct energy going on in the body somewhere, which is your particular way of experiencing these emotions. It's difficult. It's one of the, of the sort of thresholds of the practice is coming to really recognize emotions. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of skill. And one of the things we're going to do at the end of the retreat is we're going to, to look at where do we take what we've done here? How do we take this into our lives? And how can we get the support 
for the understandings that we sense perhaps that, that are around here, how do we realize them further? So we'll be looking at that too. A lot of patience, 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 you know. Well, um, we have a walking period and then we'll come together again. Um, yeah, so please walk until you hear the bell. And I'd like to really encourage you, we are drawing close to the end of the day, um, to really practice this continuity of bare attention. It's so precious. When you go back in the world, just after this brief day, I think you're going to be astonished to find how busy the world was that you stepped out of. So really revel in the fact that we are being here together in silence. And uh, um, I hope that you can be touched by the silence and the preciousness of it. Did you have something to say? Oh. Thank you. The process of meditation is one of letting go of all that obscures what was always there. The beauty of who we are, what has been sometimes referred to as our Christ nature or our Buddha nature, our birthright or the perfection of the truth of who we really are. And it's about the clouds that obscure this truth that we are called to work with. And what it is that prevents us from opening to the beauty. What it is that keeps us closed, that obscures our Buddha nature, is most often fear. Fear is the other powerful factor of mind, along with anger, that for most people is often very difficult. It's a powerfully conditioned force in the body and the mind. And it is this deep conditioning that most often keeps us tight and closed and separate from the truth of who we are. And I feel that if on our spiritual path we do not acknowledge the fear, if we do not grapple and engage the fear, we deprive ourselves of the possibility and the potential of great freedom. And that would be a tragedy. It seems that the essence of spiritual cowardice is not acknowledging the reality of fear. For if we do not acknowledge it, our efforts remain shallow and superficial. This is what is written in the Gnostic Gospels, according to Thomas. He says, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. The practice of meditation, a life of meditation, is about the totality of life, 360 degrees. Nothing falls out side of the practice. Everything that arises is potentially 
and ultimately workable. In practice, again and again, we come to our edges, our limits, our boundaries. We come to places we've not been to before, the edges of what is acceptable and what is known, places within ourselves where the familiar ends and the unfamiliar begins. These are the edges of possibility for each of us, and there must be fear there too. And so the question then in the practice becomes, can we go beyond this fear? I'm not implying that there is a place where the fear ends. What I'm suggesting is, can we open to the fear completely, where we acknowledge it, where we examine it, where we explore it completely, becoming naked in its presence, if you will, feeling it in every cell of our body for as long as the fear has life. Again and again and again. This is a movement from fear to fearlessness, not less fear, and this is very important, not less fear, but much less a victim of the grip of fear. What is it that we as human beings are so fearful of? Well, certainly, one of the first fears that arises for people in the meditation practice, as you perhaps have recognized, is the fear of pain. We've spoken at length about this, so I'll be brief here. We, for example, we're sitting and it's the in and out, the in and out, rising, falling, and pain arises. And so in the practice we go to the pain and we be with it, the throbbing, the stabbing. And then what happens? Fear arises. And so we move from the breath to the pain and then to the fear. We need to acknowledge the fear also. And so we give bare attention to the experience of fear. Now, as so often happens, as you mentioned, there is a profusion of thoughts. And perhaps the first inkling we have that fear has arisen is because we have all these thoughts. I'm never going to walk again. This is terrible. This is worse than it's ever been. I have to stop meditating. That's the clue. These are thoughts conditioned by the fear. So it's interesting. In the practice, you really begin to see that the pain arises, it conditions fear. The fear arises, it conditions thoughts. So we can catch it in the thoughts. We can be with the thoughts and then we can get to the fear and then we can get back to the pain. And this is how the practice becomes workable and freeing when we begin to see how all these different causes and effects begin to work in our lives. Using the breath as an anchor, we open to fear. Really important part of the practice. I'll speak more about that in a moment. For me, being HIV positive, in my experience, this has been really a dual diagnosis. On the one hand, it's been a, diag a physical diagnosis, but on the other hand, I feel it's also a diagnosis of fear. In a real way, with this virus comes the collective terrors, the irrational phobias, the ignorant fears of uh, humanity, deeply fearful 
of a virus it largely neither understands, wants to understand, or deeply cares about. And so what this means for me is that I'm not only dealing with my own fears, but, to the, but also a degree to which I've internalized the fears of other people. So I personally, in grappling with fear and with this virus, have had to be very careful about the relationship that has evolved with this virus. I know for sure that if I relate to this virus with fear and with anger, if I resist it, if I fight it, if I struggle with it, then I am waging war with myself, with all that that means. If I allow myself to be a victim of this virus, I'm a goner. As an abused man, being a victim is a sure kind of death. And if I allow myself to ever be a victim of this virus, I'm in big trouble. For the truth is that this virus is now a part of my life. It would be so easy to relate to this virus in the same way that society mostly handles the AIDS tragedy, neglectfully, carelessly, ignorantly, loathfully, and hurtfully. And there's so much fear in each of those attitudes. So over the years I've evolved a relationship which today I'm going to bring out of the closet here. I actually was in a meeting this week and somebody said to me, well, how do you relate to the virus? And I told them, and it's the first time I'd actually externalized this, and this person looked at me afterwards in shock and said he'd never heard anything quite so absurd. <laughs> so if all of you end up on the floor kicking your feet in the air, uh, I won't be offended. I've, I've, I'm, I'm prepared. <laughs> And you won't find this in the Buddhist scriptures either. <laughs> but it is my own way of dealing with it. And I feel that it might be a good example of working with fear um, in a way that's very practical and very personal. There's a Zulu name. I speak Zulu. And there's a Zulu name that I love a lot. It's called Sipo. And if I was ever one of those people who wanted to change my name, I would change my name to Sipo. It's a name I love a lot. S-I-P-H-O. So I d I've decided to name the virus Sipo. And each morning when I wake up, I check in with Sipo. I say, how are you? You know, what's up today? What's going on? And we sort of dialogue with each other. And that takes a couple of minutes and we just sort of catch up on what happened during the night and how he's feeling, how I'm feeling today. Then we contract. Like I've been saying to him this week now, we've got Harvard on Saturday, and so no mischief. You know, if you need to do anything, let's do it on Sunday, but not Saturday. So we sort of have these little agreements, or else I'll say, look, I'm real busy today. Tomorrow's kind of uh, a mellow day. So if anything comes up, let's just deal with it tomorrow rather than today. And so we chat and sort of laugh and giggle about it. And then we affirm our relationship with each other each day. And it goes something like this. I say to him, I die, you die. I live, you live. <laughs> 
and we're both in agreement that we both want to live. So, <laughs> so we're on the same side, you know. Then I, I like Vision Sipo as this immensely healthy guy on rollerblades. <laughs> and he's like flying around my body on rollerblades, you know. And I say to him, keep moving, keep moving. And he's only too happy to keep moving. So it's like he doesn't stop. So don't stop, don't stop, keep moving. And he goes. And he goes fast through those places where I'm most vulnerable. So like when he gets to the colon or the nerves or the muscles, it's like he just flies through there, you know. And we sort of laugh about that and he, he moves. Then we have this little bit, and this is the part that I think this guy found the most outrageous, but anyway. When he gets in the proximity of the kidneys, what he does is he stirs up all the negative HIV factors in the body, okay? And he sends them across the blood vessels, which I image in my mind, across the blood vessels and into the kidneys. So now all these fellows are in the kidney. Now I vision this every time I go to the toilet, okay? So I'm standing at the toilet and I'm seeing him go there and it's all these little guys are going across the blood vessels into the kidneys and then they all sort of gayfully and mirthfully go flying down from the kidneys into the bladder and then I have a pee and out they go and it's like I say goodbye to them all in the toilet bowl, you know, and I, and I flush the, the toilet and wish them well, you know. So that's me and Sipo and this is, a, this is a thing that we do every day, you know. Now, on the one level, it's pretty outrageous, you know. But I've been doing this now for many years. And on another level, over time, what has evolved is that the virus doesn't feel in control of my life anymore. It doesn't at all. It feels like I'm in relationship with Sipo. Even not having the A word around really helps, you know because with the A word comes so much. So it's Sipo and I on this journey together, we respect each other. And it's like, you know, if he needs a day of really acting out or I'm feeling exhausted, then what I don't do is fight it. What I do is then we just like go to bed together and chat and, you know, process and stuff. And what it's meant really in the context of this talk is that my relationship with Sipo is not one of fear. It's one of great respect, and it's one of kind of mutual welfare. And the humor is vital, you know, in, in, in dealing with it and helping to make the relationship workable. And I share this because I feel that each of us, with the issues that we bring, we need to grapple with whatever fear there is that is gridlocked in the relationship with what it is that we're working with. Because the extent to which we live within the grip of fear, I feel is the extent to which we're not allowing the healing, the possibility it might have. And so for me, working with fear is fundamental in the meditation practice. And it's difficult. It's like anger in so many ways. It's not easy. And so much of what I said in anger applies to fear. But I'm going to speak a little specifically about fear, working with fear. But first of all, so the, so the first fear is fear of pain, fear of our bodies, you know, fear of difficulty. Another fear that all of us have is the fear of insecurity. 
We come from lives where we're deeply conditioned to value security and solidity. You know, in our world, we value careers, wealth, and goals, and stature, lifestyles, and uh, what are they called, like diplomas or whatever you get from university, qualifications. These are all valued and all prized so much. The world in so many ways requires that we be sure and invulnerable and armored and strong, strong men, you know, strong women. And in meditation, what we see as we begin to examine our lives is that everything is changing. I don't know, has anybody seen anything here that hasn't changed today? I, I don't know. Well, we see in meditation that everything is changing. And that's pretty scary. We want the stability and the solid ground underneath our feet. And the truth is that things are rising and passing away. And the first thing that happens in the mind is that fear arises when we see that things aren't the way we want them to be. We feel insecure. We're afraid of being unloved. We're afraid of being alone. We're afraid of being vulnerable, rejected, of not being accepted, not being recognized or respected. This fear of insecurity often makes us turn outside of ourselves for validation and independence with no inner reference at all. We can lose ourselves in this outer referencing and thereby open us to the possibility of being used and hurt and disappointed by others. Can we live with all this insecurity? It's a real challenge in the practice living with the wisdom of insecurity. And then there's the big fear, the fear of death. The extent to which we are in a gridlock of fear of death is the extent to which we cannot deeply and truly be happy. Fear of mortality separates us from life. Most people are petrified of dying and expend vast amounts of energy avoiding the thought and indications of what is inevitable for each of us. There is so much fear of death. In a very real way, the resistance that we find in meditation to the change that we see is the existential fear of death, the arising and passing away of a thought, the birth and death of a breath, the beginning and the end of sounds, emotions, the fear that is there is the fear of death, the fear that wants everything to last and be permanent. So can we open to all this fear, fear of death, fear of pain, fear of insecurity. There's a wonderful image that the Dalai Lama gives. He says, when you're really hurting, he says, rest your head in the lap of the Buddha. He says, when you're really hurting, put your head in the lap of the Buddha. I think of that often when I'm dealing with fear. So how do we open to fear? 
Well, the first thing is we need to recognize it. And as several of you indicated today, sometimes it's not easy. It has no clear form or shape. We don't see the beginning and the end. So how do we open to it? Well, as I've said, our willingness to begin again and again and again is really the greatest friend in the befriending of fear. Gradually, the many facets of fear emerge. We've spent a lifetime camouflaging the fear, so we need to be patient as it slowly begins to come forth. As I've said in the context of anger, being willing to stop in any moment, as I said to you, Ruth, and just, what is this? How do I feel this? Is this fear? What's the truth of this moment? Being willing to really be with moments that arise in the day where what is happening is indistinct is the beginning of grappling with these really difficult factors in our mind. And slowly and surely there comes a knowing until one day we can say, I see you fear. I see you and I know you. And it's my own experience that in that seeing and that knowing, there comes great joy and happiness and a birthing of really deep faith because we begin to recognize this factor of mind that has affected our lives so deeply. And when it becomes workable, it's like the most priceless gift that we could ever possibly give ourselves. Working with fear. And then accepting the fear. I mean, fear is unpleasant, as you probably noticed. And it's a conditioned response to fear that when we're scared, we contract. We don't like it. We want it to go away. And so, as I said in the instructions, opening to the resistance to the fear. Feeling the resistance. Where do you resist fear? In your chest, in your face, in your stomach, in your groin, in your back. Opening to the resistance of fear. Watching the thoughts. It's difficult. And an attitude of loving acceptance is vital. My own teacher, Joseph Goldstein, images a young, terrified baby. He says, how do you respond to a young, terrified baby? Do you beat it? Do you shout at it? Do you not accept it? Or do you give it loving space? tenderness, care, respect. Can we treat our fear as if it were a young child? And then evaluating the situation carefully. Sometimes if the fear is great, we need to back off. This idea that we have to be knights in shining armor, blazing our way into the center of fear, is just another idea. Sometimes we back off and sometimes if the mind is calm and collected, we can go right up close and feel it. It's changing components, it's elements. We can ask the larger questions. What is the truth of the sphere? Who is it? And sometimes we can make our minds hopefully even vaster than the scope of the fear and ask those same questions. What are the edges of the sphere? Where does it end? What is fear? In the end, we come to see that fear is really an opportunity, 
It's a, it's a point of opportunity. It's a place of possibility within ourselves. It's not a problem. Fear is really a gift. It alerts us that we're in rich and succulent territory. And it certainly is where the work of the moment is. Opening to fear in the meditation. This is the Venerable Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan monk. He says, going beyond fear begins when we examine our fear, our anxiety, our nervousness, our concern, our restlessness. If you look into our fear, if we look beneath its veneer, the first thing we find is sadness, beneath the nervousness. When we slow down, when we relax with our fear, we find sadness, which is calm and gentle. And it hits you in your heart, and your body produces a tear. You're about to produce a waterfall of tears in your eyes, and you feel sad and lonely, and perhaps even romantic at the same time. This is the first tip of fearlessness, and the first sign of real warriorship. You might think that when you experience fireworks, you will hear the opening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, he said the same as what I said this morning, or see a great explosion in the sky, but it doesn't happen that way. Discovering fearlessness comes from working with the softness of the human heart. The genuine heart of sadness comes from feeling that your heart is full. You would like to spill your blood and give your heart to others. For the warrior, this experience of the sad and tender heart is what gives birth to fearlessness. Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. It comes from letting the world tickle your raw and your beautiful heart. You're willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world. You're willing to share your heart with others. Shall we sit? This will be the last insight meditation session that we'll be doing. We'll be closing the day with a forgiveness meditation. So for this period of sitting, I'm going to give instructions at the beginning and then we'll be silent together for the rest of the sitting. Once again, using the breath, as the anchor, the place where we cultivate bare attention. Watching the changing sensations as the breath enters and as it leaves the body. The breath is the primary object of attention in meditation. And it's from the breath 
that we explore every other aspect of our experience as it presents itself. Using soft background mental notes, if these are helpful for you, we move from the in, out, or rising, falling of the breath to hearing, hearing, if our attention is called to a sound. We move to the sensations in the body with the same quality of bare attention, throbbing, tingling, tightness, heat, cold, returning to the breathing again. Also opening to any emotions that arise, giving the same quality of bare attention to the energy of fear as it manifests in our body and in our minds. to the energy of anger, to any energy that arises. And if we're unsure what the energy is, then just opening to it with a soft mental note of energy. Energy is enough. The truth will present itself in its own time, like a flower which opens into its loveliness exactly when it's meant to. We open also to thoughts when they arise. There's nothing wrong with thinking. When a thought arises, just use a soft note of thinking, thinking, and then returning to whatever aspect of your experience is predominant. We exclude nothing in the meditation practice. There are no disturbances. There are no distractions. Everything falls within the embrace of universal awareness. Cultivating that strength and maturity of mind that simply allows us to begin again without judging, without aversion, without frustration. The willingness to begin again and again and again is the heart of the practice that we've been doing here together today. This is the end of the meditation instructions. Move with the same care and bear attention from the sitting to the walking, wherever it is that you best would like to do it, trying to continue the awareness without interruption, standing up slowly and mindfully, and then moving carefully, completely awake into the walking, and then back here when the bell rings for the next session.
in beginning this question and answer period, I'd like to respond to Arachne's question of this morning and also to Rob's question of this morning. And I'll refresh your memory. Arachne asked me exactly what does it mean in, say, a situation where there's pain or fear or, or anger to ask the question, who's angry, who's in pain, who's fearful? Is that correct, Arachne? And Rob's question was, um, if we're focusing on the breathing, how is that going to be relevant in terms of dealing with all of life? And how is the meditation practice going to fit into the fact that we need to live our lives? And how is it that we hold the two together and how do they interface? And the two questions are actually linked as I see them. Now there's a, there's a, a one minute answer to Arachne's question, there's a five minute, maybe a one hour, a weekend, a three month, a three year, you know? <laughs> but it's a great question, it's a very important question. And the question in a situation of fear, asking who, who's fearful? Who's afraid? Who's angry? Who's in pain? Is perhaps the fundamental spiritual question that really arises in all traditions. I'll address that from a Buddhist perspective. In the meditation practice, we come to see, and I use the we, what is it, royally, royal we, uh, that, that everything is changing whether it's thoughts or sensations or feelings in the body, however close we get to what's happening, one of the truths is that change is happening, moment to moment. As the mind gets stiller, one is able to be more precise and more microscopic, no matter how deeply and microscopically one examines one's experience, there is nothing that's changing. That is what I have seen. So the question becomes, if there's nothing changing, I mean, if there's nothing that's not changing, if there's nothing that's permanent, who is Gavin? Because something can't be both permanent and changing. Are we together? So if everything is changing, then the idea of anything not changing, anything permanent, anything stable, anything fixed, is really a contradiction of what one is beginning to see is true in the practice. And so the question becomes then, who am I? Is there any part of me, Gavin, who, that is fixed, unchanging, stable, enduring? And in terms of Buddhist uh, doctrine, that the idea of Gavin is the ultimate illusion. That really there's no Gavin here. All there is is, our, is energy arising and vanishing all the time, moment to moment. And that is what is seen in the meditation practice. Wherever one looks, however microscopically or macroscopically, whether it's thoughts, sensations, sounds, emotions, 
feelings, anything, everything is just arising and passing. And there are times in the practice where this happens with incredible rapidity, where it's just like everything is just changing. And it's pretty scary. And one begins to experientially understand that really there's nothing permanent here. And this is where Buddhist doctrine differs from Christian and Hindu doctrine, where they talk of a soul, you know, an atma, that is, that is our soul, that is there and fixed. In Buddhist, um, from Buddhist perspective, there's nothing that isn't changing. So Arachne's question then is really an important one. Who, who's hurting? Who's fearful? Who's angry? And, the, and to the extent that I understand this in my own life, that there is no Gavin being angry, and that if I can hold and live that truth in a situation of anger, as you were describing this morning, then if I can just touch that, no matter how loaded the situation is, knowing, and I've seen to whatever degree, that there is no Gavin being angry, there is just energy arising and passing all the time, then one begins to fundamentally relate to the things that happened in one's life from a different perspective, from what is known as a perspective of emptiness, where there is no Gavin. I might feel charged and, and identified and stuff, but there's a deeper knowing that that is just charge and identification, that ultimately there's a knowing that there is no Gavin here experiencing it. Then you might say, well, who's experiencing the anger? Now, this is going to get a little complicated, but I wanted to really address the question clearly, and I don't want to get too deep into it because I suspect there will be some questions too. What is happening in accordance to Buddhist doctrine is that moment to moment things are arising and passing away, and simultaneously in those moments there is a knowing of what's happening. So there's a thought and a knowing of the thought, a sound and a knowing of the sound, a sensation and a knowing of the sensation. So there's a knowing and a sensation happening moment to moment. And the knowing, which is also sometimes referred to as consciousness, knowing that something's happening, being conscious that it's happening, is really all that the, uh, those are the two parallel processes happening in any moment the thought and the knowing of it, the sound and the knowing of it, simultaneously arising and vanishing. <clears throat> and as the practice gets more subtle, <clears throat> one can experience this knowing. So one can experience the sound and one can experience the knowing of it. The bare attention can be directed at both. Or actually, one can step back and just see these two parallel processes happening moment to moment. And in the seeing, which is which is experiential, really, in its essence, it can't be spoken about, there just is no Gavin. It's just the knowing of an object, knowing of an object. And the idea of Gavin is developed when I latch onto the anger, like you were saying this morning, or I identify myself as being fearful, or I say I'm, pain, I'm a person with peripheral neuropathy and I'm a struggling victim of abuse or whatever label. In all of that, I'm kind of solidifying something that's changing. And so that's why 
I was saying earlier that I try not to hold to these labels too fixedly because the labels contradict what I know in my experience to be the deeper truth that everything is changing moment to moment. So trying to live a conventional, ordinary life along with the knowing that things are changing and that to hold on or fight or gridlock around is to struggle with what is true and that I'm going to suffer to the extent that I try and do that. And so your question, Rob, how do we take the practice into our lives in a workable way? Well, that's the challenge for all of us. It's not easy. But I feel that if we can live our lives more in alignment with the fact that things are changing, then we are living our lives more in alignment with what is true and we won't suffer so much. And so, for example, if we're dealing with anger, if we can hold the remembering of when we saw that, gee, you know, it can just purely be anger without all that constellates around it, then when you're angry with me, there's part of you that's angry and your buttons are pushed and you feel reactive, but there's also another part that knows deep in your heart that this is just energy, you know? And in that scenario, in being able to relate that way, the alchemy of the heart is awakened and their compassion arises out of how sad it is that we all identify so much with these patterns that hurt us, you know? And it's, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in the realm of, of somewhat beyond words, but I really want to address this and any questions that come up around it because it's very important. So it's like living what we find to be true in our experience in the practice is how we begin to work these, uh, how we begin to live those truths in our lives. And my experience is that any way that I'm holding on and being rigid and closed and identified with an issue or a subject or a part of my body is I'm in trouble and I hurt, you know? The other aspect of your experience, I think, has been addressed by the meditation instructions that eventually we open to everything and we exclude nothing. Now, you might say, how are you going to operate every day like at the, you know, at the Fenway from a place of bare attention when everybody around you is sort of dealing with life very differently? Um, It's hard, yet trying to just keep a thread of mindfulness through it all and being able to see things just a little more objectively than you did before is beginning to introduce new possibilities of dealing with situations that perhaps have been really difficult in one's life for a very long time. So it's a real gradual process of befriending what we come to see is true in the practice, in the... In the natural unfolding, the, the meditation unfolds in its own way for each of us and then living the unfolding in our lives as it unfolds is really the challenge. And we'll be speaking more about that at the end of the retreat. Have I just made it more confusing? Um, the, the hardest thing that I 
experience as a person with a disability, as a person with a visible disability, is being around in the world and using a cane and a white cane during the night and experiencing people demanding some type of attention, usually negative attention from me, when they jump in front of me and yell boo or try to trip me or last night some kids were following me down the street and telling me to watch out for cars that weren't there. Eventually they kind of charged me and said they were going to rob me. And I spun around and just screamed, leave me the fuck alone. And I, I can't, I don't know how to, that, that's just a constant day-to-day -day thing that I have in my life is having to deal with the demands for my attention as a, a blind woman in this world dealing with people who want my attention to them mm. and will do what they can to bring that about by threatening me in some way or um, sometimes I can't tell whether it's a legitimate thing that I need to prepare myself to defend myself against physically or whether it's just um, in, um, I know sort of a mind invasion and so I'm, I'm sitting and thinking about that and thinking about people in dangerous neighborhoods and drive-by shootings <laughs> those kind of real things of one thing I want to just affirm, which I didn't do actually at the beginning of the session, is that I'd really like this to be a discussion period where it's not that you're asking me questions and I'm responding, but I feel like this could be a very broad and open thing because there is so much collected wisdom here today. We have so much to learn from each other. So I would like to respond to you, but I'd also like to ask if there's anybody that would like to respond to, to the question. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.